When Sophia decides she could make a fortune bottling and selling hose water, the scheme only serves as a reminder of all of the other get-rich-quick scams the girls have attempted through the years. Taking us back in time, Blanche, Rose, Dorothy, and Sophia walk and dance us through their failed attempts, leaving us wondering, will Sophia bypass all local laws and sell her hose water? Will Rose's dance double ever show her face? Did everyone at the elopement die of salmonella? All of that and more in today's episode, One for the Money. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just It's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready. It's another clip show. And unlike most sitcoms then and now, the girls didn't rely on a clip show as a filler using old episodes we've seen. Of course, that happens eventually, but I've always appreciated that they utilized the clip show as a way of showing us so much more of their lives. Instead of entire episodes dedicated to one subject, we get to see the stories their friends have probably all heard a hundred times. It adds so much to the canon and intimacy of the show. Look out, world, the cutlass is coming in hot. Screeching into the driveway is Dorothy and Blanche, who have come home with dinner. As Rose sits at the table, tearing pages out of a magazine for reasons that we will never know. Seeing the pizza box in Dorothy's hand isn't as big of a tell as one might assume leaving Rose asking what they're having. Sarcastically, Dorothy tells her it's a flat, crispy bucket of chicken. Well, of course she knew that. She just didn't know what toppings were on it. Or if it was actually pizza. Sitting around, Blanche somehow pulling off head-to-toe yellow, Dorothy in a solid patterned purple sweater, and Rose in a blue and white dress are being subjected to a focus group. Sophia, ready for Valentine's Day in a pink dress with red cardigan, is asking all of them to try glasses of water. They like it. They love it. They gotta have it. This is some delicious agua. As recent an idea as bottled water seems, it has actually been available since the 1700s in America, thanks to MyOwnWater.com for that fun fact. Perrier, which has served waters from the south of France since 1898, was always the biggest name in the game. Another fun, well, not so fun as water companies have ravaged our planet, so just a fact, Perrier used to bottle the natural water and natural carbonation separately with gases from the same spring, but it was causing such a negative environmental impact, they eventually did it mechanically. Sophia doesn't care if the market is saturated, she is going to sell this water. Not only is this water yummy, it comes from her own hose, so it will basically pay for itself after they pay the water bill. Unfortunately, Dorothy is not on board with Patrillo water, but it's not because of what the idea is. It's who has had it, her mother, who comes up with new money-grabbing ideas pretty regularly, none of which work out. 
I can relate to this. My friend and I back in high school were so desperate to not have to go to college and do the nine to five grind. We were constantly coming up with things. We were going to be letter stuffers. We created too many prototypes to remember. We would gamble just in case that would pay off. We would spend entire evenings hanging out, coming up with ad campaigns like the one we did for Irish Spring just for fun. But just like Sophia, we would usually come up with the idea, be extremely passionate about it for a couple of hours, test the ideas on others, then forget about it and move on, realizing that work was unavoidable if we were wanting to be rich. Sophia isn't disgruntled by Dorothy's words of non-encouragement. In fact, she points out that she isn't alone in the quest for easy money. Need she remind you all of the time they all thought they should run a catering company? Coco, for myself... And maybe this is because I'm a Taurus or an ENFP or whatever other random woozy bougie thing you want to put on me. Through the years, I have sold spaghetti sauce at a farmer's market. I have run a daycare. I have sold selfie sticks. I tried to start a party business. I was going to have a book called The Penises of Portland. I was going to talk a friend into buying a haunted hotel. I wanted my dad to open a food cart. I've had a lot of dumb business ideas. How about you? Do you ever have that moment of like, This could do it. Maybe this breaks the bank. No. (laughs) Never. No, I I feel like I've I've had ideas for some products in my life. I've never, ever been so motivated that I did any of that stuff. Like, I'm going to actually make the sauce and jar it or (laughs) sell selfie sticks. What was that about? Oh, I did. It was back when they were very popular. My friend got married and I made selfie sticks for myself and like a couple of us that were the wedding colors and with like tooling and little jewels and stuff. So they were like wedding appropriate. And so I was like, oh, that should be a thing. You can have, you know, your bridesmaids can all have matching selfie sticks. So they have big black sticks in the air. You know, it's like actually matching. And that was that. How How far did that go? Uh, I think there's still an Etsy shop somewhere that's open. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I never sold any because I also like didn't try. I was just like, eh, that was always my problem. The podcasts are the first thing that I have like had the idea, come up with all the stuff, laid out the plan, and then actually followed through and did it and continued to do it. That's right. My thing is usually like, oh, it's done. Cool. Bye. I think I probably was like, if I ever had an idea like that, I was... Soon thereafter, thinking, uh, one, I couldn't possibly do that, and two, who cares about anything <laughs> I do? You know, I didn't have the yeah the the capabilities, but also I don't know how to make sauce. Is this a sauce related question? Is this all sauce based? In the kitchen, there's an energy as everyone is moving around working. Pink sweater and apron-clad Blanche agrees with yellow-collared and oversized groovy dress from the 60s, but as a shirt, wearing Dorothy, they're really onto something good with this wedding consultant business. Blue and white sweater with what looks to be black feather painting accent wearing Rose is excited too, but nervous. 300 people? That's a lot to cook for. Sophia, in a blue-and-white Mediterranean-looking breezy shirt, isn't even phased by the number. Back home, they would have had to cook for as many people, but from scratch. Even more stressful, if it wasn't good, you'd be shot. Who cares if Dorothy doesn't believe her? Sophia has proof her story is real. Just look at the chain of restaurants, which kind of appear to have a raised pizza thing going on, 
two guys from Italy. This seems to have been a very niche joke. With a ringing of the timer, the ladies take their spots. Dorothy is on stirring duty, staying at the stove. Sophia is grabbing what appears to be a Cornish game hen or a small chicken, standing closest to the fridge at the island. On the sink side is Rose, the seasoner. Finally, Blanche, the violent stuffer, and the only one in gloves. She takes that stuffed bird to Dorothy, who then grabs it barehandedly and places it in the oven. There's no telling why this prep couldn't have been done earlier or why it needs to be done with such urgency now, but the ladies are focused, or at least Blanche was, for one whole go-around of the chicken process. Inspired by the railroad songs that were sung by the workers of the 19th century, Rose suggests they strike up a chorus. Back when the workers were doing it, it was to pass time and to be an oral history of the time. The songs would carry on tales of accomplishments and despair while building the treacherous railroads. When the Underground Railroad began, the songs would carry hints like safe locations and routes to take. The songs have endured the test of time and have been covered by many. For example, Johnny Cash performing John Henry. Well, can you turn the jack? Can you lay a track? Can you pick and shovel too? Listen to Hammer Swingers talking to you. As for Rose, her song isn't so much about history as it is a moment-by-moment account of stuffing a chicken. Gonna stuff a chicken. Gonna stuff a chicken. Like my mama taught me. Like my mama taught me. Gonna take the chicken down to Mississippi. Getting carried away with her song, Sophia reminds her to get on track. Stopping all of the work and taking a moment to spread salmonella on all of their towels, the ladies are shocked to hear a ringing of the doorbell. Sure, it's not that surprising since their bell rings more than Big Ben, but what's concerning is that it's 3 in the morning. After all of their break-ins and police shootouts, you'd think they would listen to Rose and have a weapon handy, a weapon more powerful than their faces. Thanks, Sophia. Instead of being armed, Dorothy at least inquires as to who it is before opening the door. Hopefully, it isn't a Jehovah's Witness, a religious sect that lures people to their church via door-to-door brochures. Don't get me wrong. I don't speak poorly of the religion because I'm opposed to Jehovah's. I'm opposed to all of it. Learning that Priscilla, the bride-to-be whose chickens are being cooked as they speak, has come to the caterers for support. It turns out, oh my God, did these women even take time in between takes to wash their hands? They're spreading the stuff everywhere. Priscilla won't live to see her wedding. Coco, you were very distraught about this, even screaming, they knew about chickens in the 80s. It was really hard to even know on any level what was happening story-wise after those wet chicken hands left that room. <laughs> I mean, even before it, it was it, they were willy-nilly. I had to explain to you who Priscilla was because you were still like, why were they putting those chickens in the oven? You can only put, what, like six? It was a real sitcom moment. It really was, yeah. I guess, <laughs> the timing yeah. of the sitcom. I of... mean, the first chicken you cook is going to be horrible by the time we get to the wedding. When is the wedding? Is it tomorrow? It's the follow. Well, it's that day because it's three in the morning that they're doing the chickens. So it's sometime the next day. So let's say it's 6 p.m. That's bad chicken. That's bad chicken. At that age, I think it's even more dangerous to get salmonella <laughs> yes. poisoning. They're all dead. The next episode is everything that happened in the afterlife after they died. <laughs> Like, I like that theory. <laughs> yeah, and like Lost, they were they were together. They were gone the whole time. Oh, my God. What about the rest of the food? 
aren't they gonna aren't they gonna yeah have, you're gonna have some slaw or I mean, some if, something when they start making the salad they're gonna kill everyone. <laughs> Priscilla isn't worried about living to see the wedding because she's there to tell them the wedding is off. After all of the work they've put in, Dorothy refuses the idea before remembering it's about the girl's wedding, not her chickens. Playing Priscilla is star Andriff, who got her acting start just a few years prior in 1983's Skullduggery. Before acting, though, she was Miss Teen Hamilton and a semifinalist in the 1980 Miss Teen Canada pageant. She acted for 10 years following this appearance, her resume including Breast Men, Amityville Dollhouse, General Hospital, They Came From Outer Space, Dance of the Damned, Ghoulies 2, Falcon Crest, and Facts of Life. She was also the star, writer, and producer of the Canadian miniseries Child Star in 2014. Blanche can't understand why you would call off a wedding just because of a fight. Well, it wasn't just a fight. It was a fight about her fiancé and how he slept with her best friend. And that's when everyone said, Good for you. Trust your gut. You're young. Live your life. Learn and love who you are before wasting time worrying about being loved by someone else. Just kidding. Sophia tells her to be grateful he cheated on her before they were married. That way it's out of his system and she can have the ammunition to make him feel guilty. Wow. Happy marriages for all. When the phone rings, the answering side is Miami Mom's catering. On the other line, it's Ramon calling to speak to his betrothed. Rightfully, she is not interested. As Dorothy plays the in-between, reporting Priscilla's feelings back to Ramon, Blanche excitedly grabs onto his apology, nearly booting Priscilla out the door, telling her they'll see her at the wedding. Believe it or not, Rose is the one to call the ladies' attention to what they are doing. Are they all really willing to not only be disrespectful to the sanctity of marriage, but ruin the lives of Priscilla and Ramon just to make some money from chickens? Without hesitation, all three agree that, yeah, they are. Which is good news for Rose, as she felt the same way. Just want to make sure they were all on the same page. Taking over phone duties, Rose convinces Priscilla to talk to Ramon. After a few uh-huhs, the couple is all fixed and are certain to have a long, happy, healthy, loving marriage. They're actually so excited to get married that the few hours they have to wait until their ceremony isn't soon enough. That's why Ramon is going to call the airline right now and get them tickets to Vegas where they can elope, karmically rendering the catering moot. Dorothy doesn't want to ruin the excitement, so she gives Priscilla her finest piece of crystal, a vase, as a wedding present. And after Priscilla leaves, Rose is in a tizzy about everything. Without a word or even acknowledgement, Dorothy calmly picks up the phone and calls the police to report a robbery. Poor Priscilla. Is this the meanest thing the girls have ever done? She's just trying to marry a jerk and now they can't even elope? It's Miami mom's fault for not making a contract to hold her financially responsible. One good thing about her going to meet up with her fiancé is that she's going to pass salmonella to him. That's true. And then maybe he's no more. Yeah. And she can have a good life. Yeah, I like that. Oh, fan fiction. Back in the kitchen, Blanche reminds Sophia that the catering plan was a business, not a scam, which is exactly Sophia's point. The water thing, it's an outright scam, so it has to work. Given Italy and France's relationship, it's no surprise Sophia talks trash, saying selling bottled water is a scam, hence the French coming up with it first. 
I'll give that a little smidge of an oh garçon. Curious why Sophia has so many ideas, Rose asks her why she's money hungry. Simple. She wants a TV in her room. The Motley Fool tells us that back in 1988, you could get a 35-inch Mitsubishi Diamond Vision television for around $3,000, which would be about $7,000 today. But nowadays, you can get a high-quality brand 43-inch television delivered to your door for about 500 bucks. Wondering why she would want to spend her money on that, Dorothy reminds Sophia there's a TV in the living room. But for Sophia, this is about independence, getting to watch what she wants to watch when she wants. For example, she's been hearing a lot of buzz about the finale of MASH, so she doesn't want to miss that. Except that, I hate to break it to you, Sophia, that finale aired on February 28, 1983, to a staggering audience of 106 million viewers. How huge is that? Well, the population of the U.S. at the time was only 244 million, so like 43% of the country watched. Even now, almost 40 years later, it holds the record of the highest viewed finale and the highest rated episode of a scripted series. Sorry, Sophia. Guess you'll have to wait a few years for the DVD. When Blanche breaks the news to her, Sophia can't believe she lives in a world where the Aaron Spelling ABC primetime drama starring James Brolin, Hotel, which had just begun its final season at the time this aired, would still be on the air and MASH wouldn't be. What does she look like? Donna Rice, who had been all over the tabloids the summer of 1988 as she may or may not have been having an affair with Senator Gary Hart, who was looking into running for president. Donna denied the relationship, so I can only assume this joke was in regards to Donna being portrayed as a not very smart person. It turns out this isn't the first time Sophia was trying to earn money to buy a television. Taking us back to Brooklyn, it's spring 1954. Right before Easter, Sophia had taken on some sewing jobs, and that's what we find her working on when we go back to the apartment in Brooklyn, just as Sal is walking in the door. And finally, we get to see Sal. The Brooklyn-born Sid Melton, whose father was a Yiddish theater comedian, was a singer, actor, and frequent comedy partner to the lead lesbian himself, Danny Thomas, appearing in nearly 100 episodes of his show. Besides his recurring role as Sophia's beloved Sal, he also appeared in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Dragnet, The Lucy Desi Comedy Hour, The Munsters, Dick Van Dyke, Andy Griffith, That Girl, Mod Squad, I Dream of Jeannie, Green Acres, Living Single, Blossom, and Empty Nest, the show, not the episode. Here he is hawking some cereal while playing golf with Danny Thomas. What's that noise? Hmm? I'm eating post-sugar crisps. Well, you have to eat them now. The way I play golf, I need post-sugar crisps. <laughs> it's a sweet treat that gives you the muscles of wheat. I know, I know. You know, it's a sugar-coated cereal that's made with mother in mind because it has controlled sweetness. Say that all the time, child. <laughs> you know, it's less sugar than the kids will put on themselves. Some of us may remember fake fruit as a decoration of the 70s and 80s, or even here in the 50s. As Sal learns the hard way, Sophia has decorated with the bogus bananas, chipping a tooth. Fun fact, wax fruit as home decor has actually been around since the Victorian era. Knocking at the door is Dorothy, again perfectly played by Linny Green. She's come to talk to her mom about something, which is why she didn't bring her kids. Before Dorothy can get to the favor asking, Sal is yelling from the kitchen about a newfangled foil-covered meal. 
TV dinners actually started out as airline dinners, safely prepackaged meals ready to take flight. Smithsonian Magazine tells us it was after 1952's Thanksgiving when Swanson had 260 tons of leftover turkey sitting in refrigerated train cars that, horrible fact, would only provide cool temperatures if the train was moving, so Swanson had their trains going back and forth from the East Coast to Nebraska until they could decide what to do with the birds. That's when the suggestion of adding sides to the turkey and tin pans ready for the oven was made. By 1953, TV dinners were out. By 1954, 10 million dinners were sold. Last year, about 564 million frozen meals were sold in the U.S. Back to Dorothy's favor. She's needing to get some work, so she's wondering if Sophia would be willing to watch her kids a couple of days a week. The reason she needs to get work, and not because Stan lost his job as a novelty salesman, he just isn't having the best sales of fake poop. Sal can't imagine why the prank he was able to pull with the plastic poo was hilarious. Sal's musings about Stan's novelties leave Sophia not speechless, but annoyed and sarcastic, saying how lucky she is to be married to witty, sophisticated playwright Noel Coward. With her snark, we're actually narrowing down where they live, learning the Petrillos reside in the neighborhood of Canarsie in the southeast area of Brooklyn. If Stan still has his job, then why does Dorothy need work, Sophia wonders. Well, she explains, she just wants to get a little bit of money so she can buy a TV for the family. Shockingly, Sophia refuses to watch the kids, calling television a fad. To prove her wrong, Dorothy points out that her father's meal is called a TV dinner, not a radio dinner. As Sal goes on celebrating the smoothness of the potatoes from the kitchen, Sophia offers to provide the lumps missing from the potatoes directly to Sal's head. Knowing what to say to get her mother to help, Dorothy mentions she'll just leave the kids with her mother-in-law, Stan's mother, the gorilla, as Sophia refers to her. She can't leave the kids with her. She scares them. Annoyed at the arguing going on while he's just trying to enjoy his divine meal, Sal tells Sophia to just tell Dorothy something. Sophia's clearly annoyed at Sal, and now Dorothy wants to know what's up. Sal is no longer annoyed at the argument, but at the fact that there isn't a tunnel for easier access from the pea compartment to the mashed taters area. That's when Sophia spills. The reason she didn't want to watch the kids was because she's busy with her sewing jobs, jobs that she's taken on to buy the family a TV for the 10th wedding anniversary of Dorothy and Stan. It's not like she would need that many nice clothes to go to the local farmer's market on Mulberry Street. Sound the alarm, we've got a timeline whoopsie. It's April 1954, 34 years before the conversation that's happening in the kitchen. It's Stan and Dorothy's 10th anniversary, meaning they were married in 44, meaning she was knocked up in maybe late 43, meaning Michael, her son, whom we met when he met Rose's daughter, would be around 44, 45 years old. He didn't look 44, and he was hooking up with an 18 to 20-year-old which seems on par for the 80s. This would also mean Stan, who we learned in job hunting was leaving for the Korean War, would have actually been headed out for World War II. Laughing at her mother's offer, Dorothy takes a seat. She has a confession to make as well. She didn't want the job to get a TV for her family. She wanted to get one for her dad, whose birthday would be the following month. Hello, fellow May birthday boy. So it's decided. Each family will buy the other a television. 
That way Sal can go hang out with Stan on fight night. Sophia and Dorothy can stay in watching the Edward R. Murrow hosted Person to Person, which featured him doing celebrity interviews from their homes. The intimate format lasted from 1953 to 1961. That new show Sophia wants to watch, Make Room for Daddy, changed its title after three seasons to The Danny Thomas Show, which triggers the arrival of Sal back from the kitchen after his solo TV dinner. He's leaving, out to get some fresh beer with his heir. After exchanging I love yous and promising to stay up for him, Sal leaves and Sophia turns to her daughter, who has already perfected the art of the side eye. But she explains she just can't help it. When she sees the five foot three Sal, she sees the hunky Australian actor known for 1930s films like Robin Hood and Dodge City, Errol Flynn. He was also known for dying in the arms of his 15-year-old girlfriend when he was 50. Hello, Michael Zbornak. South of Brooklyn, we're back in Miami, enjoying the last of the delicious pizza that the girls are nearly fighting over. Even Sophia, who is busy snacking on some cherry tomatoes or maybe huge grapes, she's in for a slice. And she doesn't even like chain pizza. What can she say? She's very adaptable. Taking a tiny bite out of the last piece, Sophia disgustingly tosses it into the sink, saving the girls from the torture of the bad za. But Dorothy can't understand why she would even take it in the first place. Simply out of principle, she explains. She always feels left out, so she has to force herself into situations. Like that time the girls left her out of the dance marathon. 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 Looking back, the girls realized they hadn't just left Sophia out of the loop, but they hadn't even told each other about the contest, as there was money involved. Arriving in the ballroom in a stunning blue sequin dress is Blanche, with Marty, who is played by Roy Stewart, who got his start in theaters performing on Broadway in Beg, Borrow, or Steal, and Cafe Crown. His appearances on television and films include General Hospital, Mr. Ed, Bewitched, Gidget, Gomer Pyle, USMC, Room 222, Laverne and Shirley, Chips, Mama's Family, and <gasps> Hotel. As whiny as her date has been, Blanche is certain they're going to have fun. But I'm on Marty's side here. It's one thing to invite someone dancing. It's quite another to spring a marathon on them. Although I have always wanted to participate in one. Maybe we can get some roaring 20s action going once everything is open again. I mean, we aren't that far off from the Great Depression, which was what inspired the start of dance marathons. And dance marathons were the inspiration for the 1969 Oscar-winning film, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Easy come. People are the ultimate spectacle. And now, now you're going to see it, Yowza! has good reason to have brought him. She needs to win the money as she desperately needs medical attention. That is, attention from medical personnel. She needs the money for new clothes so she can be worthy of dating a doctor. Having told her dry cleaner boyfriend of the evening that she was only with him to get a doctor, he starts to question the validity of their relationship. And you're right to do that, Marty. Go home. 
you deserve to be loved for who you are. To Blanche's surprise, Dorothy, in a black sequin dress, has arrived with her date, who is being played by Edmund Ballin. Besides his time on Quincy M.E., Heart to Heart, and Falcon Crest, Ed was also a choreographer, which probably helped him to get this gig. Acting like perfect frenemies, the ladies feign cheering one another on before the trash talk starts, with Blanche, of course, who warns Dorothy to take it easy, as though she was the late 82-year-old wife of former President Dwight D. Eisenhower, Mamie, who passed away in 1979. When it comes to a battle of endurance, Blanche might have the upper hand in the heart rate department, but Dorothy reminds her they aren't dancing on their backs, so her skills might not translate to her feet. As the best friends stare one another down, hurt by the insults, Dorothy can't believe Blanche would imply she was old. Blanche can't believe she thought it was only an implication, as she meant for it to be more direct. Just as the argument of them hiding the competition from another gets even more heated, an adorable rose in a flowy pink dress and white dance shoes arrives. Still scorned, Dorothy serves double feelings of betrayal by not only calling Rose Judas, the guy who lied to Jesus, but also gives her an et tu, meaning you also, but in like a super betrayed way. Yeah, it's when, uh, isn't it when Julius Caesar was stabbed to death? And then, oh, is that Brutus? Yeah, and then Brutus was the one that that I think made it happen. Uh, and he was like, I think it's like, and you too, and you. Yeah, at two How could is you supposed to be like specifically like. How could you do that? Was that Julius Caesar? Yeah. Thinking it's her extra poofy do throwing Dorothy off, she points out that it's her, Rose, and we know how Rose gets in competition, and she used to be known as the dancing fool before they dropped the dancing part. Working since 1945, our announcer for this dance, Conrad Janis, had his most recent work come out in 2012. In between that time, he appeared in The Untouchables, Get Smart, Beretta, The Happy Hooker, The Invisible Man, The Waltons, Maud, Happy Days, Frasier, Baywatch, The Cable Guy, St. Elsewhere, Barnaby Jones, and La Heat. I'm sorry, that's L.A. Heat. Even though the dance floor is for a hospital fundraiser, they don't want any corpses on the floor, so anyone with heart issues is asked to leave before they get the party started. As the music begins, Blanche's date returns with their numbers, but he has bad news. He's somehow twisted his ankle. He's in no condition to dance the night away. Besides the pain, Blanche has made it clear she'll be keeping the $1,000 if they win, so why should he bother? With a whisper of sweet filth in his ear, Blanche has convinced him to work through the pain. Panning across the room, we see nothing but sequins and smiles. There are a lot of guests on this episode, so let's get through these dancers. Rose's date, Dave, is Ed Kerrigan, who you may recognize from Mama's Family, The Carol Burnett Show, The Red Skelton Hour. His dancing may also seem familiar, as he was one of the dancers in Bedknobs and Broomsticks and on The Dean Martin Show, where he also did choreography. Among the dancers in the room are Carl Jablonski, who did choreography and dancing on shows like Sophia's least favorite, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, The Judy Garland Show, and The Jimmy Dean Show. Holding a special place in our hearts, he also worked on Donnie and Marie's Goin' Coconuts, a summer favorite. And let me clarify, because Coco, you're going to, well, you're going to go Coco Nuts. There was a movie. Not only did I just learn our favorite summer album has a movie, which we need to watch right now, in getting a clip, I was looking for a performance to celebrate their mediocre voices and Carl Jablonski's choreography. But you won't believe who I found talking to them in this scene. Yeah, that's Herb, a.k.a. Stan. This 
He uh, sure doesn't look like a private detective to me. He's just starting out. He's an ex-con gone straight. He knows all the angles from both sides. I have double-checked him completely, and he is rock solid. That's what a what a crazy crossover thing. I don't know us. how I got into possession of an album, Donnie and Marie. I'm not a Donnie and Marie person. No. Somehow I got this album, and it's called Going Coconuts, and somehow... Last summer, it worked as the perfect theme music on the deck, sitting outside working, throwing on some going coconuts. It was a delight. It's a great album. It's really fun. And they're weirdly sanitized versions of songs. <laughs> yes. And I think Teenage Wedding is called Rock and Roll Wedding. Yes. It was a rock and roll wedding, <laughs> and the old folks uh, wished them well. Are you ready for more fun facts about going coconuts? Yeah. Donnie and Marie actually chose to do the film Going Coconuts. Because it was more family appropriate, because they're good Mormons, than the other film that they had been offered and were going to do, which was Grease, where the brother-sister duo were set to play Sandy and the Teen Angel, and those roles went to other singers, Olivia Newton-John and Frankie Avalon, respectively. Could you imagine Grease with Marie Osmond instead of Olivia Newton-John? That would have just, I mean, I, I'm not like the biggest fan of Grease in the world, but Boy, it if just it wasn't Olivia Newton-John, no, that would not have worked at all. Those two are perfect in that movie. And they're still best friends all these I, years It's later. adorable. It's adorable. They put a terrible Christmas album out, I think, a couple of years yes, ago. Yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember seeing her on CBS Mornings like a year or two ago and she was like uh, auctioning off her pants or something? No. You didn't see that? <laughs> I don't think she so. She auctioned off her grease pants for oh. something. And then uh, the person that bought it, I think, was like a super fan of Olivia Newton-John and gave them back to her. And then she put the grease pants on. I think it was on CBS Mornings. And she could still fit into them. Of course. Yeah. It was, it was uh, very cool. Yeah. One of the best Australians. I love her. All right. Back to the dancers. Bobby Bates has played a dancer in nearly every one of her roles, including in Funny Girl, Titanic, The Carol Burnett Show, and she worked with B before in MAME. Same for Bonnie Evans, who must have been friends with everyone on set, as she too worked on Red Skelton, Carol Burnett, and Hello, Dolly. Burl Johns danced across the screen in Viva Las Vegas, The Julie Garland Show, Red Skelton Hour, The Dean Martin Show, Pete's Dragon, Carol Burnett, Mama's Family, and The Beverly Hillbillies. Another friend to Carol Burnett and company was Shirley Kreitzmar. She also danced on The Bobby Darren Show, Happy Days, where she played Blossom through multiple episodes, Laverne and Shirley, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and she even got to work with Mr. Freddy himself, Leslie Nielsen, in Dracula, Dead and Loving It. If you insist on ranting like this, I'm going to leave. Me ranting? You're the ranter. Hello, little darling. Don't be afraid. I won't hurt you. All I want is your life. Put him in a state jacket and give him an enema. Wait. Give him an enema first, then put him in a state jacket. Dancing alongside Shirley was Alton Ruff. He also appeared in Mame, Mama's Family, The Carol Burnett Show, Dean Martin, and Red Skelton. Finally, Ted Sprague, who was also in all of those programs, along with The Bob Hope Show and The Sting, too. And unfortunately, I was unable to find the name of the stunt dancer who worked Rose's moves. As the disco ball spins, the night goes on. The dancers, those that remain on the floor at least, are in their seventh hour. The exciting horns and jives have mellowed to delicate jazz and swaying, but they're dancing nonetheless. 
Reminded of the big dance back home, Rose starts to reminisce about St. Olaf, prompting Dorothy to scream out for a judge. Rose is clearly trying to bore everyone to sleep so she can win. Rose decides it's Dorothy's exhaustion causing her to feel tired, not her story. Who you call an exhausted, a non-exhausted, Dorothy exclaims. You want to see exhausted? To pick up the pace, Dorothy takes over the band. Requesting some peppier music, she gets the Made Famous by Glenn Miller jazz masterpiece 1944's In the Mood. Taking the floor first is Dorothy, proving just how untired she is. With some shaking fingers and outkicked heels, she and her date make their way across the floor, starting a combination dance circle slash soul train line. After some twirls, twists, and mashed potatoes, Blanche has had enough and is ready to show off just how awake she and her date are. Blanche's blue dress flows open, nearly touching the edges of the crowd. After some head bobs and close-ups of fancy footwork, it's Rose's turn. All the innocence she was perceived to have had while asking permission to dance is gone when she warns her date to stay on the sidelines as to not get injured. With a count on her fingers and silver shoes on her feet, Rose is the maestro now, starting the band with Sing Sing Sing, famously recorded by Louis Prima and Benny Goodman among thousands of covers. Fun fact, my brain actually couldn't remember this song or the artist, and Google couldn't even pull it up. Luckily, my dumb brain, which can barely remember things long enough to carry on a conversation, has the visual of chocolate chip cookies jumping into milk from this song in a commercial from the 90s. Thanks, YouTube and Chips Ahoy. As Rose's shoulders shimmy and she gives the room a show, the fan-favorite stunt dancer arrives. With cartwheels, flips, and splits, Rose has made it clear. She, too, is far from tired. With a flawless transition of stunt dancer finishing with their hands wrapped around their head to Rose sneaking in, resuming the pose, it's time to get back to the marathon. Rose feels renewed energy from her performance. Dorothy and Blanche feel new energy, too. An energy they must hoard, as it is clear it will be an uphill dance to beat the ever-energetic Rose. Waltzing through the night, it has now been 13 hours and only four couples remain. There had recently been five, but Nick Montevesi, uh, sure, he survived World War II, but he may not survive phlebitis or a swollen vein. To no one's surprise, Dorothy, Blanche, and Rose remain tangoing. With shoes taken off, ties undone, and pain raging through everyone's bodies, the end is nigh. Blanche's date is over it. No matter what she offers, he'd rather sit. Now Blanche is out of the competition unless she can talk someone else into dancing with her in the next 60 seconds. Rose's laughter and the schadenfreude she's witnessing only amplifies Blanche's desire to continue. So she approaches the last remaining couple, offering the man, who is holding his date like she's a drunk sorority girl, to do, well, probably something really dirty if he would switch partners, an offer she has surely made at other gatherings of sweaty, tired people. After her final, more extreme offer, the man twirls his partner into the sunset, sweeping Blanche off of her feet and saving her spot in the contest. Needing some water or a banana, Dorothy's date is now the one succumbing to the physicality of their fundraiser. His calf muscle is cramped up. Journal Times gives us the unique and fun fact about the origin of the phrase Charlie Horse. Back in the 1890s, there was an old lame horse who worked the Chicago White Sox ballpark roller. 
With stiff muscles that would tighten up, players would reference him when they ended up getting cramps in their legs. Helpful fact, besides hydration and potassium intake alleviating the pain and occurrence of Charlie horses, if you get one, straighten your leg out and pull your toes back. If you're standing, I suggest hanging a heel off of a curb. If you're in bed, you can just lean forward and grab those piggies. I'm no doctor, just a girl that hates bananas and swims a lot. Dorothy has as much sympathy as Cruella DeVille when her date is hurt, telling him to walk it off, which he then literally does. Squawking behind him, Dorothy's in a desperate chase to save her chance at winning the $1,000. With the one girl dumped and Dorothy chasing a horse, the contest is down to Rose and Blanche. But very quickly, Rose is out. That's because her date, Dave, has developed a sudden, urgent need to leave. No, he's not hurt or ill, but his wife, who just arrived, will kill him when she finds out he's cheating. Weird he chose a more than 12-hour marathon to do that, but no judgment. Maybe his, his wife is just generally a very heavy sleeper. <laughs> he can just go. I'm leaving for work for two days. I will be very tired when I come back. <laughs> My dogs are going to be barking. <laughs> I Couldn't you just, maybe his wife wasn't a dancer. Couldn't he just say to her, hey, my friend Rose is a dancer. We're going to go dance and we'll split the money and you can have the money. Yeah, it's an unusual way to cheat, yeah. I feel. Unless maybe that his wife comes from the town in Footloose where they don't allow it. Oh, and it's like a just, deeper. Yeah, something bad happened in her town where there was some dancing related deaths. I like that. I like that background for her. When the conductor announces the winning couple of Blanche and the stolen man, his date returns to pull him away, hopefully to celebrate the $500 they'll have. But before the check can be written, a new couple has arrived. Within the one-minute requirement, Rose and Dorothy have each found a partner. Rose and Dorothy. Serving us Jojo Siwa on Dancing with the Stars energy, the ladies are breaking the boundaries, presenting us with a powerful same-sex pair that are only concerned with winning. And then... We go back to the kitchen. We don't get to see who won because things got ugly. As the ladies recall how everyone looked with the surprise return of the girls and Blanche's win, we find out she only won because the hospital was rude and they disqualified the ladies. Blanche was at least decent enough to share her money, hopefully with the guys that helped her win it, she also gave Dorothy and Rose 10 bucks each. Dorothy got a can opener with her winnings. Back with more questions, Sophia's wondering if she's cute. When told yes, she gets more specific. Cute enough to put my face on a jar of tomato sauce? Sure, she's cute, but no one is cute enough to be on a shelf next to the late movie star and philanthropist Paul Newman, whose Newman's own brand of salad dressing and sauces has raised over $570 million for charity in its 40 years. Sophia can't deny. That's a good point. So, no water, no sauce. It's back to the drawing board. I wanna take the chicken down to Mississippi. <laughs> Some might view the girls, especially Sophia's ideas, as silly or a waste of time. But what really matters is that they're still trying. They aren't stopping themselves because of age, ability, history, or fear. They get an idea, sometimes pursue it, and maybe it'll work out, maybe not. But having another failed idea is a lot more fun and inspiring than never attempting their dreams, no matter how outrageous. So start that business, open that shop, and hope for the best. And if it doesn't work out, 
You can always send the cops after those who have wronged you. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when Coco finally finds out who or what Baby is in Bringing Up Baby. I really can't wait to find out what, <laughs> what, is, the baby? what is baby. What is baby? You're going to love it. Is it called baby? The baby, the, whatever it is, is called baby? I don't know. Oh, my God. broken pen has stained my finger. No. My notebook paper. Yeah, I'm not I'm not surprised they weren't interested in pube-based advertising. Grandpa left a stack on the bar of Irish Spring. A little bird's nest. Wintry white. No. And crispy. Like only a grandpa pube can be. Grandpa pube. Grandpa pube. I I think <laughs> mm, gravy's a good one. <laughs> I don't know, man. What's a sauce? Is a sauce consistency or what you do with it? Don't ever apologize for eating a crackle. <laughs> Dorothy is on inspired by the railroad railroad song. Inspired by the railroad songs that were sung by railroad. <sighs> inspired by the railroad songs. Wow, have I ever said this word? Inspired by the railroad songs that were sung by the railroad. <sighs> Inspired by the railroad songs that were in. <sighs> I'm just trying to read. <laughs> Inspired by the railroad. <sighs> <laughs> Even if you're not, I'll always say yes so you don't get upset. I'm not... oh! <laughs> no, I meant that in a nice way. Oh, I, know. I, was... <laughs> I was screaming in delight. <laughs> For example, Johnny Cash perform- performing. Too much crackle? <laughs> that one was a Kit Kat. Yeah. <laughs> Who got her acting start just a few years prior in 1983's Skullduggery. Duggery. Emma Day. You! Hey! Hey, you leave me alone. <clears throat> Why did I have Sprite? When the doorbell ding-dongs. Salmonella is a very inexpensive assassin. And left a little chicken outside Just for an hour. Little, left the chicken on the roof for a little bit. <laughs> on the roof. Sound the alarm. We've got a timeline. Whoops. Sound the alarm. Some French music. I made that mistake once. <laughs> you don't know the story of Olivia Newton-John's husband? Well, if you guys want to hear some Olivia Newton-John, <laughs> I highly recommend the song Heart Attack. Same for Bonnie Evans, who must have been friends with everybody. <laughs> wow. You're going coconuts. Oh, not hustle. That's a little. Mm-mm. Oh, that's right. Do the dance move. <laughs> beep boop bop, beep boop, beep boop bop. <laughs> Drive to the church. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Pray, 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 pray. Besides hydration and pot- potassium. It's okay to cheat. <laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production.
You'll always be my sister.